Today I want to talk about the dragon and the boy king. Sounds like a comic book, right? I grew up reading comic books and I had uh, Spider-Man and Batman and Thor and the Thing and Hulk and, and all these characters. And it wasn't until recent years when my kids started really getting into that stuff and all the movies that I understood that there's a Marvel universe that I really didn't know anything about. And all these characters that I really don't even know who they are. They have super powers. And this, this um, Marvel universe intersects with our universe in some real tangible ways. For example, there are some names of people that, that exist in both universes. There's some real historical events like Vietnam or, or World War II that actually um, are connected to the Marvel universe. But then there are other things that are part of that universe that we know nothing about. Super, super villains with powers and special powers to do dark and devious things. And there's good beings who have good powers and they can do great things. And I imagine as lost as I am in that whole Marvel universe is how some of you feel when you read the Bible, particularly the book of Revelation. Like, who's the beast and the dragon and the harlot and, and all these, the serpent and oh God, I am just so confused with all this stuff. In fact, I, I put a little figure together that has all these different names of characters and things that you see in the Bible um, the man of lawlessness, the false Christ, prophets, all these different things, even the number 666. By the way, last week, some people came to um, leaders in the church and said, hey, uh, you need to change the attendance from Sunday. Because some of you noticed, last week, attendance said 666. They go, ah, I'm spooking out over this. It's just a number, kids. It's just a number, Okay. Nobody knows exactly what that is. There's a, good, there's a good evidence it could be speaking of Nero in the first century. We don't know. That's, that's part of it. I've spent hours and hours, literally hundreds of hours studying end time stuff. When it comes to these names, everybody's guessing. Who's the man of lawlessness? I, I don't know. Who's the Antichrist? I don't know. Who, who are these people? Who's the beast? I don't know. I'll tell you who I think it is. But, but so far, everyone seems to be wrong. But... I want to tell you, it doesn't matter if you know the identity of those villains with superpowers. What you need to know is that there is a kingpin over them all. And that's the one we need to be most concerned about. Because however he manifests on this earth through political figures and spiritual leaders, that's the one that we know, need to know how to deal with. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who you know except that you know Jesus and that you're on his side of the battle. So we're going to cover a lot of ground today, probably get your head spinning in some areas, and I apologize for that. Hopefully some of this will cause you to want to dig a little bit deeper in the scriptures. But I want to just step back and give you kind of a, a snapshot that I think John gives us in the book of Revelation of the behind-the-scenes battle that then manifests itself on planet Earth. And so if you have a Bible, you might want to follow with us. But we are engaged in a cosmic battle against a formidable but defeated foe. And when you open up the book of Revelation, which can be a very confusing book, it's written in a, in a form of literature called apocalyptic literature, which means it's, it uses a lot of symbolism between animals and numbers and characters that actually have sometimes underlying meaning. And in Scripture, oftentimes the meaning can go back to the Old Testament to other characters and numbers. Uh, the biblical writers are very big on, on numbers and the values of those numbers and the images that certain creatures had. Apocalyptic literature was usually written for people who were living in hostile times because they needed hope. So they may be in Babylon. They, they, they may be in Rome. And they need to know how this is going to play out. Apocalyptic literature gives hope. The book of Revelation was actually written to a group of people living in the first century who are living in the Roman Empire, which is a very powerful and sometimes tyrannical um, uh, influence. 
You may read through history of times where Christians were taken and tarred and lit up like torches or thrown to the lions in the games in the Colosseum. It's a very horrible time and Christians wonder, God, what's happening? Where is all this leading? And the book of Revelation says one thing very clearly, that God is still in control and that in the end, he wins. And so for people, no matter what you're going through, some people say that Revelation's all past history, it's all over, all that happened already. Some people say it's, it's mostly future, it's still yet to come. I see a blend of both. There were some things that they were very practical to the people in the first century. Living in Rome where there was emperor worship, where people called Caesar their God, he was Lord. But even, even today we see evidences of, of things in Revelation, of these patterns playing out, and we see um, things happening in our culture, in political realms in particular. But I think Revelation 12 gives us a, a picture of the real spiritual battle behind the scenes and what Jesus um, says about how we should respond to it. So I'm going to read Revelation chapter 12, starting with uh, verse 1. John sees this. I see a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. John sees this formidable yet defeated foe. He's wanting to encourage the believers, and he's going to do it through uh, this part and the next part, showing us how he is defeated. Number one, he's defeated, he's overthrown by the sun. This character called the dragon, which by the way is where people come up with this figure of, a, of, of Satan prancing around with red tights and horns and tail. But this is a fierce, fierce, powerful dragon. And it's a reference back to the Garden of Eden where Satan stepped into uh, the scene in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Now we don't know from creation where the angels started, like when did all this happen? We know how humanity, how God spoke and all the physical world came into being, but it seems like there was a spiritual world that was created sometime before that, an invisible spiritual world in which God had made angels. Angels were created beings. When God talks to Job in Job chapter 38, he says that he challenges Job and says, where were you when I made this earth? Where were you when I formed everything? And he says, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy when God was forming this earth. Now, who are the, the morning stars? Who are the sons of God? Those are, those are terms that are often used to describe angels. In fact, that term morning star, star of the morning, is the name of Lucifer. Lucifer is referred to in the Old Testament, the, 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 the morning star in Isaiah 14. There's another story in Ezekiel chapter 28 where earthly kings are likened to an angelic being that was in the garden that was a guardian cherub of God. But because of arrogance and pride, wanting to rise up and be like God, this being was cast down to the earth. And everyone who studies it says that seems to be a clear reference to Satan and how he fell how he came to this earth. He couldn't compete with God in the spiritual realm. He thought, maybe I could get a foothold here on this ground. So when God made Adam and Eve, told them not to eat of the tree of good and evil, along comes the serpent, and he tells them not to trust God, but to trust him. And so they listen to his words. They eat of that fruit. 
Death comes as a consequence of their sin. And, and all through the course of history, Satan has made a habit of persuading people to trust him more than God. And so here he is. He's entering this world. He's getting a foothold. And over the course of time, we see that people have yielded their hearts to Satan. Whether they know it or not, they've listened to him and they've obeyed his will rather than God's will. Satan has stepped in to be kind of a rogue king on this earth. He's the rogue king. He's not the real king. He's the rogue king. We see it playing out with with humanity getting so vile that God says, I need to wipe them out with the flood, start over again. I mean, it says they were so wicked. And then after the flood, it's like we start all over again and God wants the people to do what he asked Adam and Eve to do. You know, go out, multiply, fill the earth. And they says, no, 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 we're gonna stay right here and build a tower, a tower that'll actually enable us to reach up to the gods. It's called the Tower of Babel. And God came down and confused their languages and they, they were spread out and finally began to fill up the earth and began to speak these other languages. Now, the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament scripture is called the Midrash. And there is written in the Midrash this view that God chose 70 angels to oversee the 70 nations. That's how many nations were dispersed. 70 different nations, each overseen by an angel. But it says that God's lot uh, was Abraham and his family which actually lines up with something Deuteronomy 32 says. It says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he's separating them, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Another term for angels. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. Now, some of your Bibles say sons of Israel, but the older manuscripts actually say sons of God. It's the belief that there are nations that have angelic beings assigned kind of spiritual oversight of this. And we see this coming up in Scripture uh, of these principalities, powers, rulers, and the spiritual realms that then intersect with human. That's why a lot of the, the evil that happens in the world, are called, people are called beasts on earth, evil rulers, because of the spiritual force, the dragon behind the scenes. Now, my belief is that when God separated this, and if he did put an angel over each of these nations, kind of as their ruler, their prince, Probably at that time they were good because they have free will. But like Satan, became corrupt over time. And now you look through history and you can see various nations, some extremely wicked, extremely wicked. You, you, can, you can trace through world history, nations doing child sacrifices, human abuses, sexual perversion, all kinds of stuff happening in these nations, genocide. I mean, we even see stuff like that today when we look at Syria or North Korea and we see all this stuff happening and you have to step back and go, where's all that coming from? It's almost like there's a demonic force influences. How can people think this way? But it's true. That's why Paul says our our battles are not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers in the heavenly realms. But you don't have to look at the nations to see Satan's impact. You just need to look in the mirror. Dwight L. Moody, by the way, Even though most people believe there's a God, far less people believe in a real being called the devil. But I like what Dwight L. Moody, an evangelist, said. He said, I I believe in the devil for two reasons. One, the Bible says he's real. And two, I've done business with him. (laughs) And you and I have. And there are things I thought and done and said that I probably never really wanted to do. And I wonder, where'd that come from? Where'd that come from? Where'd that idea come from? Where'd that thought come from? Where'd those words come from? Where did that anger come from? Where'd that lust come from? Where did, where did that come from? And there's an evil being who wants to plant and whispers 
in our head, things that would draw us away from God. And sometimes we giggle at it and say, you know, the devil wears Prada, you know, that kind of, it's real cute. No, it's dark and it's devious. And Satan is out to take us down. Jesus said, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Satan actually entered into Judas, Scripture says, and caused him to betray Jesus. You know, it, it would be good if God put us on a leash and said, okay, you can only do the good, but he gave us free will. And, uh, you know, I, I mentioned our, our dog is here this morning. I took Snickers out and every, every, well, several times a day. She needs to go outside and do her business. So it's, it's kind of hard to do your business when someone's got a leash on you. So we, I, I, I disconnect the leash and let her run around. And usually she just kind of walks around, finds a spot and does her business. But this morning, as soon as I unhooked her, she took off across the field. I'm hollering at her. She's not listening. She's just running, bolting across this field. It's probably a rabbit or something. And then she finally wanders back. And you know what happens is when God takes the leash off of us and says, okay, you got some free will now, we go, oh, man, there's that thing over there. And it could be, could be materialistic. It could be sexual. It could be pride. You know, we go running after it, mad. You know, we're just going to get that thing. And then we come back. You know, we're all like that. That's what sin is. Sin, Satan has found a way to put a lure before us, to draw us away from God. But see, when Jesus came, he, he knew that Satan had a lot of power in this world. And when he came here, Satan actually said to Jesus, you bow down to me, I'll give you some of these kingdoms. Jesus, Jesus turned, turned him away. But Jesus did say several times, in fact, I think this is three times in the book of John, call Satan the ruler of this world. Paul called him the prince of the power of the air, the God of this age. He says in Colossians 1, he has a dominion of darkness. That's the world. That's this world in which we live in. He is the rogue ruler. But here's the truth. Jesus is the rightful king. And that's what John saw in this vision. This child born of the woman who would rule the nations. When Jesus came, the the prophet Micah had said that this king would come, the ruler of Israel, humble from the town of Bethlehem. And then in Isaiah, he says, the woman will give birth. The virgin will give birth to a child. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor everlasting father, prince of peace. He'll sit on David's throne and the government will sit upon his shoulders. He will have a kingdom that has no end. This is Jesus coming in the world. When the Magi came looking for this child that was born of the woman, they said, who is this born king of the Jews? So the word got out that that a king had been born and that king was Jesus. Now there's a very fascinating thing if you look at Revelation 12 with this imagery there, and I won't go into uh, this in a, in a big way. You can actually look it up online and, and follow a YouTube by a man named Michael Heiser, Revelation 12. But he says there very is possible an astrological message here that you have the woman. There's only one sign in the zodiac that's a woman. Her name's Virgo, and there's a time of the year when the sun is in the the heart of Virgo. And when the moon is at the feet of Virgo, it's only a very short window of time. And one of those moments of time, there's only, it only happens a few times historically, one of those is, is September 11th, 3 BC, which, which could be the birth of Christ. September 11th, 3 BC was the Jewish New Year, the Day of Trumpets. It's called Tishri 1. It's like January 1st. Tishri 1 was the day when, da- when David began his reign as king. 
So it's almost like God was, God was saying through the stars, which may be why the wise men, because back in those days, they didn't do fortune cookie kind of astronomy like we do today. Like, like, look at the stars. It'll tell you whether you're going to have a good day or bad day, whether you should marry that guy or not. It wasn't like that. But it could be that God sent a message that his people living in Rome, which was a very astrological culture, they, they're the ones who solidified the 12 characters of the zodiac, was saying, look at the stars. There's a message right there. And just like I did this in history, I'm in charge of the future too. And so this, this one is born, he's a king, and Satan does not like him. He, he inspires Herod to kill all the little boys. That doesn't work. When Jesus is tempted, tells him to jump from the pinnacle of the temple. That doesn't work. It says the devil then departed from him until an opportune time. There are times that people tried to push Jesus off of cliffs. There are times where Jesus was, was confronted by demons. But every time Jesus was confronted by demons, they shuddered in fear. It's like if anybody knew who Jesus was, it was the demons. In fact, one time two demons shouted out to Jesus and said, yeah, have you come to tor- torment us? Is this the appointed time? Meaning we know there's a time when our lives are going to come to an end. Is this, is, has it come now? Like they knew who Jesus was. He was a king. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God is in your midst. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He told parables about the kingdom. When he, when he um, entered Jerusalem that final week, scripture was quoted that he's, that he's riding, that your king's going to ride in on the, the, the back of a donkey. And then Pilate flat out asked him, are you a king? He says, you've said so. You've said so. So Pilate had this sign put over Jesus' head at the cross saying, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, king of the Jews. So Jesus was the rightful king. It's very clear. When Jesus was doing ministry, he showed power over demons, over disease, over sin and death. And then Jesus said this in, God, in John. Now the judgment of this world, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast off. In other words, Satan, get off my chair. This world's mine. I'm claiming it back. So Jesus sends out his disciples. He sends out 72 disciples. Some versions of your Bible say 70 disciples. Sends them out two by two. He gives them power over disease, power over demons. They preach the gospel. They come back. They are giddy because they said, Jesus, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. It's like, now was Jesus referring to past time when Satan fell or in that moment he fell? I don't know. But he's seeing Satan's going down at the hands of his apostles. And by the way, here's something real interesting. Those 70 or 72 apostles that went out preaching, a lot of versions say 70. You remember how many nations came out of Babel? 70. It's as if Jesus was saying, it's time to regather them. It's time to regather the nations. They're all mine, not just one. They're all mine. And so Jesus gathers the nations. In Psalm chapter 2, it's a messianic psalm. God says to his son, today, have, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and you shall break them with a rod of iron. That phrase, the rod of iron, shows up in this vision by John. What does it mean? Is Jesus going to wield a stick and beat people up? Well, that rod of iron means it's an unbreakable rule. He, he is going to reign, and no one's ever going to break his reign. It is permanent. And, and even though he will punish nations that are defiant, it also is a protective reign. He is going to break the strongholds that have been holding the nations back. Because in that same psalm, the very last verse, it says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So Jesus is gathering. He is the safe place. He is the refuge. But Satan thought they had defeated Jesus at the cross when he was crucified. 
And for three days, he probably partied until Jesus rose from the dead. And then as John says in his vision, that child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's the ascension. It says in Hebrews, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. At the right hand of God, the position of power, Jesus continues to have oversight of his kingdom through his people. And that's where the battle shifts now. It's going to shift to his people. I want to read one other part of that vision from John from Revelation 12, starting with verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were, th- were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Not only is the devil, this dragon, overthrown by the sun, he's overcome by the saints. That's us who believe in Jesus. Now, here's what you need to know about Satan. Sometimes we get all like afraid of who Satan is. If somehow, you know, there's this big evil being here and there's God over here. It's like a, a boxing match or an octagon cage. And we go, in this corner, we have the beast. We have the dragon. He's powerful and he breeds fire. And he's just, he's someone to be, to be fearful of. But over here, we have God who's good and he's dressed in white and he's strong and powerful and he's gonna duke it out with the devil. It's not like that at all. God is way up here and Satan's down here. Because God made Satan. Not as, not as Satan, but made him as an angel. He's a created being. He's limited. God is unlimited. God is so powerful. God doesn't even waste his time fighting Satan. Amen. He really doesn't. Do you know how he fights him? <sighs> the scripture says he will defeat Satan with the breath of his mouth. Now, I don't think it means bad breath. I think it means the words... <laughs> Words he speaks out of his mouth. When the rider on the horse comes, he's got a sword coming out of his mouth. As believers, we're told to take our stand against the devil. We put on the full armor of God, and then we take the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. The Word of God. Thessalonians 2 says, says the lawless one will be defeated by the breath of Christ who comes. So, so for, for Jesus, he's a pipsqueak. It's like Conor McGregor versus Pee Wee Herman. Come on. He, he, he doesn't hold a candle to the Lord. I love that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Because there's a line in there that says, you know, um, though our foe is grim, we don't fear him. One single word will fell him. One single word. So, so God's not fearful of Satan at all. We shouldn't be either. But he does kind of delegate his angels to do the, the, the battle. So it says Michael and his angels are fighting the dragon and his angels. And Michael obviously wins. We see Michael through Scripture. He's an archangel. He's written about in Jude chapter 9, where Satan debates Michael over the body of Moses. And all Michael says to him is, the Lord rebuke you. It doesn't say he puts him in a headlock and noogies him. No, it just says, the Lord rebuke you. It seems like that seems to be the, the, how God wins battles, through the truth. But you'll find out in a little bit why the truth is so important in doing battle against the enemy. Satan 
is then focused, him and his angels, it says, were cast to the earth. That's where their focus is. He's called the ancient serpent. Takes you back to the Garden of Eden. He calls him the devil. That's the word, uh, uh, it means slanderer. He's called Satan, which means your adversary. He's your accuser. And then he's your enemy. But here's the description you need to know most about. He deceives the whole world. He's the deceiver of the whole world. This is his MO. This is his number one tactic. It worked in the Garden of Eden. It's worked all through history. He's, he's persuaded people to love the things of the world more than the things of God. To, to listen to the lies of the devil, not to the truth of God. Do you notice that, that in the descriptions of Satan's instruments on this earth, the, the beings he uses, the beast, the lawless one, false teachers, false prophets, false Christ, they're all false. They do counterfeit miracles. They teach things that aren't in alignment with the truth. Satan is all about deception. In fact, Jesus point blank said he is the father of lies. He does not even know how to speak the truth because it's not in him. He's a deceiver through and through. That's why we have to be aware all the time and keep our eyes open. How is Satan trying to trick me? How is he trying to deceive me? And a lot of these deceivers come up, Jesus says, they'll rise in your midst, meaning they can even come within the church and deceive the elect, he says, if that were possible. See, Satan, Satan pulls a lot of people out of churches into cults. Did you know that? The number one breeding ground for cults are church people because, they, because we know just a little bit of Scripture. And when they start quoting Scripture, we go, oh, they must be right. And so we go and follow them and their teachings because we don't know enough of God's word to discern truth from error. There are a lot of people out there teaching. In fact, Paul told Timothy, be careful because there will be people in the end times that will gather around them voices to say what their itching ears want to hear. And if you're looking to hear what you want to hear and if everything you're hearing from, from a pastor, from a teacher is just what you want to hear, it's probably not the full truth because God's truth will challenge you. God's truth will cause you to repent. God's truth will correct your life. You know, one of the things that when you live in a hotel, you, you end up watching more TV than you probably normally would. And there's some there's pretty interesting shows, by the way. It was really cool watching this one in South America um, at, at an airport where they're catching drug, drug traffickers. That's pretty cool. I like that one. But, but that, then that, that overflowed into another show about drugs and how they're packaged and all these cute little packages in convenience stores. And they says on the packages, not for human consumption, but young people are buying these drugs. And the reason they can't stop it is because they have on there, not for human consumption. But people are saying, you know, I can get a hit like cocaine or, or marijuana or some other drug, but, but it's legal. And I can get it right from the convenience store. And I thought, what kind of being would develop something as diabolical as taking horrible chemicals that warp your brain and make you feel strange and you think it's good? You look around the world between opioids and meth and all kinds of stuff and you go, That's just, that has to be diabolical. It has to be from Satan. Of what he's, he's, he's stealing from people and he's peddling this, this whole host of lies. Don't believe everything you see and hear because it may be coming from the enemy. Now, it says his time is short, so he knows he's got to take down as many as he can. But here's what I want to focus on. Here's the real application. John says the dragon is overcome in your life and my life by two things. Number one, the blood of the lamb, which is the triumph of Jesus' death his death on the cross. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, 
they had curses. You know, Adam had to work the land. Eve had um, pain and childbearing. But, but God made them a covering to, to kind of cover up their shame. He says, you know what? I'm going I'm to give you a way to be reconciled with me. I'm going to find a way to deal with your sin. But for the serpent, there's no reconciliation. There'll be no reconciliation with the serpent. No path of redemption. In fact, I'm going to put enmity between the woman and the seed, which means the offspring of, of that woman. And then he says this in Genesis chapter 3. He, speaking of the, of the child that would come from the woman, he's saying this to the serpent. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, even though they didn't know it at the time, this was very prophetic because when Jesus died on the cross, it was a minor blow. It bruised his heel. In what way? In what way did it bruise his heel? Do you know that when you're crucified, when you're like this, and, and your feet are on a little piece of wood there, it's your heels that are on that piece of wood. Do you know that the only way you can survive is continually elevating yourself to get, catch your breath? And your heels bruise. That's what happened to Jesus. Satan did that to Jesus on the cross. But God says, He's going to turn on and crush your head. He's going to crush your head. He's going to bruise your head. See, we overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. Colossians 2, speaking of Jesus at the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Or some of your Bibles say, in the cross. Satan comes to accuse. He comes to point out how unworthy we are. He says he comes before God day and night accusing the brothers. What does he say? Oh, they're not worthy. They're not worthy. Look at them. Look at those believers. They call themselves Christians. And they sin. And they use foul language. And they, they're sexually perverse. And they're materialistic. And they're selfish. And Satan, Satan brings that to our attention to condemn us. And make us feel unworthy. But the truth is, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. None of us. Only Jesus is worthy. But because of the blood of the lamb, I've been cleansed of my sin. So when Satan points out my flaws and my sins, I point him to the cross and say, hey, that was covered. That was paid for at the cross. I admit, Satan, yes, I'm unworthy. Yes, you're right, I've sinned. Yes, I don't deserve any good thing God has to give, but the cross says differently. It says I am loved and I am forgiven. We overcome him by the blood of the lamb. Satan hates the fact that we have communion every week because it goes back to the cross, back to the blood of the lamb. But that's how we overcome his accusations. There's one other thing he says, though, not only the blood of the lamb, but the word of their testimony, the testimony of our faith. It's our testimony of what Jesus has done. You know, John, who wrote Revelation, also wrote the letters 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. 1st John 4, 4 says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. He's speaking of the Antichrist. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That when you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, yes, if you put on a hierarchy, there's God, the angels, and us. We're, a little, we're made a little lower than the angels. But when Jesus is in you, you go way up here. You, ha you have authority and power that's, that comes from Jesus that makes you even greater than the angels, greater than Satan. So we don't have to fear the devil because he who is in us is greater. We have been forgiven and cleansed. John says, everyone who's been born of God has overcome the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You want to be on the winning team? Accept Jesus as your Savior. That's as simple as it is. Put faith in Jesus. You'll be on the winning team. You'll link yourself with the ultimate winner. Then a couple verses later, and this is the testimony that God 
gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. You know, when I look back at my life before I knew Jesus, I didn't know this at the time, but I belonged to Satan and his kingdom. I did. And, and it's horrible for me to think like, oh my goodness, I didn't know that. But now I belong to the kingdom of God. I've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of God's son. And you can be too if you accept Jesus. God shifts you from that kingdom to the good kingdom. There's only two kingdoms. You don't get the option of saying, I'm an independent. I belong to a third kingdom. No, you don't get to do that. You're part of one kingdom or the other kingdom. There's only two to choose from. And by default, we have all lined ourselves with Satan. Now, does Satan like that? Absolutely not. In fact, I would tell you this. This is, this is kind of disturbing. Satan could take your life. That's why John says that people stood to their testimony even unto death. And if you read Revelation, there are martyrs in that book. And there have been martyrs throughout history. Do you know there have been more martyrs in the last 100 years than the prior 1900 years? There's documentation of uh, 14 million Christians martyred from the time of Christ to the year 1900. Now, I'm sure there's more, but that's what's been documented. From 1900 until today, there's been over 26 million martyrs. Well, let me just give you a cu- couple um, historical events. 100 years ago, 30% of Turkey was Christian. 30%. That's where Ephesus is and a lot of the biblical cities are in Turkey. Then 2 million Armenian Christians were executed in Turkey. Others fled. Now there's a very small fraction of Christians in the country of Turkey. Sudan killed 1.3 million Christians. We see in other countries Christians being executed, sometimes by other religious groups. And Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but fear him who can cast both the body and soul into hell. See, these bodies are going to be renewed anyway. And God never says he's going to protect us from dying for our faith, because that's happened all over the world, all through time. But we win even then with the resurrection of the body, the new life, eternal life with Jesus. When Paul gets to the end of the book of Romans, again, this is in that Roman kingdom. He's writing to the Christians there. I love this passage, Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Satan is a little pipsqueak. You don't have to be afraid of him. And God's gonna crush him one day, not under his feet, under your feet. Under your feet. That's why when I read the book of Revelation, people say, like, it's all happening now, you know, I'm afraid. Oh, my goodness, look what has happened. I go, bring it on, because I know how this story ends. I know who wins in the end. Jesus wins and we win. There's nothing to be afraid of. We ought to be the most optimistic people in the world. Christians ought to be the most hopeful people in the world. We're not depressed by what we see. We say, oh, yeah, God God told us that was going to come, but we know who wins. And it's sprinkled all through the, the book of Revelation. You'll find these pockets of worshipers and what they're doing. And they go, oh, glory and honor and wisdom and wealth. Go to the Lamb on the throne. You know, the voices are lifted up. The multitudes, the angels, they're praising God. Why? Because he's victorious. He's victorious. See, you and I need to look at the big picture. And we ought to be worshiping like winners. 
There ought to be such joy when we see things played out in our world. Not fear, not hopelessness, but joy. Because our Savior has won, and because we know Him as our Savior, we overcome as well. So you can't crush Satan under your feet if you're sitting down, so you need to stand up. We're going to sing about the victory. We are going to see a victory, right? We are going to see a victory. Because of what Jesus did on the cross and because of what he's done in in my life and your life. And if you don't know that yet in your life, you need to get surrendered to Jesus even today. Right now, let's just lift up our voices and worship like winners.